The NFL regular season is over and the college football playoff is tonight. It's Monday, January 8th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. College football playoff final is tonight. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, happy uh, title game day. Yeah, beyond, beyond, you know, the picks, the X's and O's and all that. Where do you see this final in terms of the, the overall narrative that, you know, in this crazy season of college sports? Yeah, I mean, this is the swan song for the four-team college football playoff. Um, It is the last game of the last four-team structure. Next year, we're switching to a 12-team structure, um, which is obviously going to be completely different. Um, You know, and I I don't think that um, whether it be the network executives, the CFP, or just the fans could have asked for, you know, a better matchup, a better four-team playoff. Um, Even the teams that didn't get into the four-team playoff uh, created a ton of storylines and buzz. Um, They're clearly going out with a bang. But, uh, yeah, whether you loved or hated the four-team playoff, it is going to be over by this time tomorrow. Yeah, and what is it going to mean, do we think? You know, I mean, we've got sort of two things that both involve the number 12 here that are con- converging in next season, the death of the Pac-12, the rise of the 12-team playoff. Yes. Do we know how this is all going to mash together um, in terms of like what picture we're looking at next next season? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I wrote over the weekend, there are a ton of unknowns still about the 12-team Uh, CFP, everything from like literally who gets in with the qualifying structure is going to look like to, um, you know, the revenue distribution to what the first round of games, which are going to be played on campus will look like. Um, A lot of that is totally out of the CFP's control, though. And as you said, it's because of uh, the death of the Pac-12. When a lot of these things were initially decided, the Pac-12, you know, there was an assumption of five power leagues and five group of five leagues. That's not going to be the case, obviously. Um, So the CFP has, you know, they say they'll have everything, all the X's and O's and they've, you know, everything buttoned up by Labor Day. Um, But there are a bunch of huge questions. Again, not really, you know, because of like the CFP's negligent planning, quite the opposite. Uh, They made a bunch of decisions and are now back to the drawing board on several different things because of what happened with the Pac-12. And let's just take a quick look at the the two teams that are facing off. Um, you, you've made an interesting point just, you know, in our discussions that so Michigan, you know, it's had this superlative season on the field. Off the field, there's been all this, you know, this controversy, the scandal around sign stealing. Jim Harbaugh got suspended. But Michigan itself has managed to take that into make that uh, an opportunity and used it as a marketing opportunity. So talk to me a bit about that. What what have they done here? Yeah, it's really interesting because um, Michigan has really embraced the phrase of like Michigan against everybody, Wolverines against everybody, Wolverines against the world. 
Um, you know, in a league where Alabama exists, it's pretty difficult to become the universal villain, but Michigan succeeded at that. And they have, you know, taken that and almost turned it into a badge of honor. Um, you know, they're, they're, official retailer collective have been selling Michigan versus everyone merchandise fanatics breaking tea also made shirts. I believe the fanatics ones were mostly sold out. I believe a lot of the, um, the M den, which is like Michigan's, you know, retailer sold out as well. Um, it's a phrase that's been repeated by players, um, by, you know, even coaches of other teams, the athletic department tweeted it out. Um, so it's it's pretty crazy that it's become not just a rallying cry, but almost like, you know, a, a business identity for Michigan that has galvanized its fan base, um, obviously given a, a chip on the shoulder of all the players, I'm, I'm sure. But, um, you know, it's it's become this very weird, successful marketing ploy is how I would describe it. Yeah, no, I think there is some kind of grand theory to be made here out of like when teams get caught doing something that they shouldn't be doing and then it's embarrassing and there's a scandal and there's the fallout and eventually people are still mad at that team, but the fans are like, whatever, we're still going to root for it. And, and so it becomes part of the identity and you're like, well, you, you didn't believe in us. And it's like, well, no, we didn't. It's not that we didn't believe in you. It's just that you cheated. Uh, anyway, right. well, this happen I, with other I, teams. I, mean, I could just interject um, because I know you're the, you're, you're a baseball guy, right? I've been thinking a lot about the Astro scandal. Astro scandal, objectively way worse. In my opinion, I'll probably get some hate for that, but that's sorry. Yankee fan. Anyway. So, um, <laughs> the Astros, like as a team, didn't create this sort of like business related slogan related marketing ploy, um, out of the scandal. The fans obviously rallied behind them, but you know, from a merchandise and money perspective, they didn't, you know, capitalize on that storyline the way that Michigan did, which is what has made it so interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and because the Astros thing, I think, was kind of worse, it would have been really tacky for them to try to monetize it. But yeah, but the fans did come I around think some and of say. The Astros fans would disagree with you, but sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, let's hit on uh, Washington. Um, a little bit, a little touch of irony to have them in the final as you know the the, the last hurrah of the Pac-12. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the last time the Pac-12 um, had a team represented in the CFP national championship um, was literally 10 years ago. Um, and then 10 years before that was the last time they had a champion who won. And so in the last year of the modern PAC 12, um, Washington is representing them, which is great. And they're being heralded as like, wow, the PAC 12 got a team in the playoff in the last year, potentially of their existence. Um, and not just the playoff, but the national championship. Problem is, Washington was one of the teams that uh, ripped them apart. Um, I certainly don't want to assign blame to Washington. Uh, I think that obviously all 10 of those departing members had a hand in the Pac-12's demise. Um, ultimately, I think the buck uh, stopped with uh, Commissioner George Klyevkov and his inability to deliver on a media rights deal that would keep them together. Um you know, but it's important to say that not only is Washington one of the schools that broke the Pac-12 apart, but they're also the school that spearheaded 
the legal defense in the lawsuit over who has control over the Pac-12. They were the school that represented all the departing schools, um, you know, in whether or not Washington State and Oregon State should get control of the Pac-12 board. So they play, they did play kind of a special role in, I guess, the epilogue of the break of the breakup, you could say. So, um, you know, nothing, uh, you know, makes any sense in college football these days. Uh, them representing the Pac-12 doesn't make sense, but here we are, and it's going to be a great game tonight. And uh, by the way, if this game were played a year in the future, uh, it would be an all-Big Ten matchup. So that's where we're headed. Yeah, wow. I hadn't thought about that. Amanda Krasovich, thanks so much for joining us. Yep, thank you. When it comes to what people watch in America, there's the NFL, and then there's everything else, and the NFL is winning. Nielsen released its 100 most watched broadcasts of 2023, and it's basically all football. The top 20 were all NFL games. The 21st was the State of the Union address, followed by 13 more NFL games, then the Thanksgiving Day Parade at 45. Then of the remaining 55 most watched broadcasts, we have the Oscars, the Super Bowl leadout, three college football games, and 50 NFL games. 93 of the top 100 broadcasts last year were NFL games, and four of the other seven were football or football-related. Even for the NFL, this was a uniquely dominant year. In 2022, it was still mostly NFL games, but college basketball got in there, as did the Olympics and the World Cup, and a few other political events. The year before that, we had more Olympics, an Oprah special, and a 60 Minutes episode made the top 100, but last year the 93rd most-watched NFL game was more popular than every single game of the NBA Finals, March Madness, the World Series, the Women's World Cup, or anything scripted. The NFL rules American media, and nothing else comes close. As attention turns to the NFL playoffs, most of the conversation is going to be about your top Super Bowl contenders, but it's worth taking a moment to acknowledge that it's a new day for the Houston Texans. This is the team's 23rd season in the NFL, and Saturday's victory over the Indianapolis Colts gave them their seventh playoff berth. In the previous six tries, they have won four games and never made it past the second round. They had won 11 games total over their previous three seasons. Houston is the fourth most populous city in the U.S., but since the NFL returned to the city, the team has been stuck in second gear. But this year, they won their division with first-year coach D'Amico Ryans and rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud. Stroud is showing he was very much worth the number two overall pick in last year's draft, he also would have been worth the number one pick, but that's another story. And just as important, Ryan seems to have finally provided stability after the Texans went through three coaches in the previous three seasons. Don't bet on them to win the Super Bowl, but the future is bright in Houston. And it's been a long time since we've been able to say that. Up next, this season of bowl games has featured some memorable games, a very memorable and consumable mascot, persistent questions on the value of some of these games, all against the background of a college football world undergoing massive changes. I spoke to Nick Carparelli, executive director of Bowl Season, about what's working and what needs to change, and that conversation is coming up next. Joined now by Nick Carparelli, Executive Director of Bowl Season. Welcome, Nick. Oh, and thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So we're coming to the end of Bowl Season. Uh, one more game to go. How would you assess this Bowl Season? You know, so far. In all, it's 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 still been a great Bowl Season. We've seen some unbelievable moments uh, for certain programs. We've seen three different teams win their first bowl game. 
uh, first bowl victory in their history. We've seen teams like like Rutgers playing in a really competitive Big Ten who had to scrape together six wins and they beat Miami in the pinstripe bowl and you watch them celebrate and, and have momentum going into their offseason now. That was pretty awesome. Even even schools like Clemson that have been to the CFP before, you know, they were four and four at one point this season. They won their last four games, eight and four, had to go to the Gator Bowl and beat an SEC team in Kentucky to get their ninth win for the 15th year in a row. That was really meaningful to them. So I think those are some examples of why bowl season is still so meaningful. There's 133 FBS institutions only four this year, only 12 next year make the playoff. That's not enough spots uh, to, for, to reward deserving teams. Every team's different. Definitions of success is different for every team. So bowl season is really a celebration of the sport at the end of the year. The way you describe it is, you know, interesting is interesting to me in that um, I'm wondering if there are, you know, some complications or challenges or just uh, unique parts to this beyond, you know, all all the feel good stories, which are, you know, you're right to mention. Was there, you know, some some sort of unique features to this year that you're still kind of processing? Yeah, well, that's, you know, my first comment to your question was it, it was it was a unique bowl season, but it was still a good bowl season. And the, and the uniqueness of it and the difference in the last few years has been, you know, the con- the conflux of the early signing period, uh, the, the need uh, for student-athletes to be compensated through NIL and the, and the transfer portal window happening right in the middle of bowl season on top of bowl season. You know, you think about it in every other sport that the sport calendar is sequential. Uh, instead of all the major events piled up at one time, right? In the NFL, you have the you have the regular season, the postseason, you have the, the the combine, the draft, free agency, and it makes sense. College football makes no sense uh, right now in terms of the calendar, and it just it just needs to be fixed. Yeah, and and what kind of fix would you recommend there? Well, I think I think the leadership of college football needs to take a hard look at all those things I mentioned and not be afraid uh, to make changes that maybe people are telling them they can't. You know, I think if someone comes up with a solution and says, hey, this is this is what's right for the sport. It's for, it's what's right for the majority of student athletes. Yeah, you're not going to have a system that's perfect for everyone involved. Everybody's system, uh, circumstances are, are unique. But as I've said, and it's been repeated many times in the last few days, Bowl games are not the problem. People love bowl games. The average bowl game, there's, there's going to be over 4 million people that watch the average bowl game on TV. They turn the TV on on a weeknight between Christmas and New Year looking for a bowl game. They don't even know what bowl game it's going to be. For these student athletes, I had the, the running back for Air Force on my podcast. We recorded this morning. It comes out later. Uh, it was his last college football game ever. He was the MVP of the Armed Forces Bowl. It was so meaningful to them. There's more of those stories, right? So um, people love bowl games. It's the circumstances that we've allowed to happen around bowl games that are happening simultaneously with the preparation for for the postseason. Yeah. And I mean, one, <laughs> this seems like an easy fix to me. It's probably not an easy fix uh, and not a true fix, but it feels like moving the transfer portal to after bowl season seems doable. Uh, There might be elements here that I'm not thinking of, but just to kind of make it more of a sequential thing, like you would see with the the NFL season, you don't start free agency, you know, when the regular season ends. Uh, Is that at least one relatively easy fix here? I think it is. You know, now people are, everybody's afraid of of litigation nowadays. Um, Obviously, uh, the first semester at most colleges ends 
beginning of December. The next semester starts middle of January. So if someone's going to enroll second semester, they kind of have to make that decision during bowl season. It's, it's an unfortunate uh, fact. But, you know, for years, a player could not transfer and play the next year. You know, I would propose that if a player wants to transfer and play the next year, he can, but he has to commit to an institution for one full academic year. So we only have one transfer portal uh, window at the end of the academic year in May. I think that would be best for everyone involved. I think it would allow coaches and programs to assess uh, their program after high school recruiting and after spring practice to see where, where the needs are to be filled. It allows student athletes to see where they fit in. Sometimes I think student athletes are making decisions based off of last year's roster. They're, they're very emotional at the end of the season. The roster is totally different two months later. And a lot of guys get stuck in the transfer portal. Might give them an opportunity to say, hey, let me, let me see how this shakes out first. And then come come May, no one's telling them they can't transfer and play right away at that at next institution if they so desire. And you mentioned that you know we only have four CFP teams uh, this year, or going up to twelve next year. How is that going to affect things on your end? Well, you know, if you think about it, there's this been this thing called the New Year Six uh, during the ten years of the playoff, right? So six six you know high level bowl games. Two of them had, were acted as the semifinals. The other four were just you know, the next next best teams ranked, you know, one through 12. Um, we're still going to have that on the new system, only they're going to be playoff bowls. So those games are going to be more meaningful, which is great. But the rest of the bowl system is really going to get the same type of team they've always, always gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And we're seeing this regular trend now. It's pretty well documented of top players skipping out on bowl games because they don't want to risk injury before the NFL draft. It's a pretty easy calculation for some of them. Um, what do you think about the idea of compensating athletes more directly for playing in bowl games? Well, two things on that. I, I think, you know, a lot of people like to talk about that. I think it's, I think we need to have that discussion and, and really that's all I'm saying at this point. Um, if that were to happen, uh, one of two things, if not both has to happen. One, the, the bowls need to have the ability to generate more revenue, uh, than they already do to compensate the players. Bowls operate on very, very thin margins. Uh, they, they pay tremendous sums to the conferences and the institutions who participate uh, as a, uh, in order to pay their expenses to get there. It's a big traveling party. So if bowls can use student athletes to promote the game, to promote the destination, to promote the title sponsor and generate more revenue, I think there, there may be room for, for uh, student athlete compensation. The other way is if the conferences say, you know what? Instead of this large chunk of revenue that you're distributing to us at the end of the year, let's let's we'll we'll take a more modest chunk and then some of that, some of the remaining can go to the student athletes. So I think if it were to happen, it would be a little bit of a shared responsibility between the bowl organization and the conference. I think another thing we could look at is is uh, is insurance coverage. You know, two years ago, Alabama uh, was in a New Year's Six game. It wasn't the playoff. Every single player on the Alabama roster played. And it's because the institution chose to take out insurance policies for those players who were uh, considering going to the NFL. Uh, I think that's something as an organization, something as a group of 10 conferences that we can come together and talk about and say, hey, can we have some kind of blanket policy for all these guys, uh, which would be more economical and might say, hey, the guy says, hey, I'd love to play in this bowl game. I just don't want to risk my financial future. Um, I'm going to be okay with this insurance. 
Yeah. So I was about to ask, you know, who's going to be doing the paying? Where does, where does all this come from? It sounds like from what you just said, it would be, you know, the conferences would have to kind of all meet in the middle somewhere. And, you know, maybe it's not the same deal for every bowl game um, and every conference, but there would have to be some kind of unified agreement to make this all work. Absolutely. We're in a new day and age. Uh, every conference commissioner, every uh, athletic director, head football coach I talked to is adamant that we need bowl season. They need those opportunities. But the finances have changed. You can't deny that because of uh, the presence of the CFP, because of the transfer portal and, and the NIL. Um, can we address those issues and in the, in the timing of the calendar? Yes. But I think there needs to be greater ownership between the bowl organizations and the conference and the institutions uh, in the um, in the bowl games each year. Mm-hmm. And I've seen Kirk Herbstreet and others saying that the Rose Bowl should host the college football playoff final every year. Uh, one, it provides stability, and you know we, we've kind of very much a changing landscape in the the college world right now. It's also you know the venue, the event with the most history, the most pomp and circumstance around it. You know why not put the final there uh, and just make that a regular thing? How do you what do you think about that idea? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised somebody might think that. You know, obviously, the Rose Bowl is very, very special. Um, and if you if you were going to rank bowl games, they're, they're all really meaningful to different people. But you know, the Rose Bowl's uh, you know Rose Bowl's probably uh, at or near the top. Uh, we, we need to remember there, there's other bowl games with great history and tradition. I was at the Sugar Bowl uh, watching uh, Washington beat Texas, and people have so much fun in New Orleans. That game has so much history and tradition. It's the second oldest bowl game. Uh, the Cotton Bowl, the Orange Bowl is really special. So much, uh, so meaningful to that community involved. So there's a lot of bowl games that need to be involved in the playoff. And I think that's probably the reason they'll continue to be. And just looking ahead to next season, um, so obviously we've got the 12-team playoff, but what else, what other changes do you see on the horizon for for bowl season? Yeah, so we have a kind of a two-year situation that we have to manage. All the bowl contracts were consistent with the CFP agreement. So there's two years left on all the, all the agreements between bowls and conferences. Obviously, with the situation with the Pac-12, there's a number of high-level bowls, uh, the, the um, Alamo Bowl, the Holiday Bowl, the Las Vegas Bowl that uh, had a high selection, the Pac-12, and now have to find a different partner. And you can't, you know, there's a, you know, I happen to know there's a lot of conferences that would love to go to those destinations. But in these next two years, you can't just send, uh, you know, the, the last place, you know, Big Ten team now, just put them at the end of the order, the Alamo Bowl, because that's that's a great game. It gets a great TV rating. So the conferences and the Bulls are going to have to figure that out. Two years from now, once we really get into the next cycle of agreements in 2026, you're going to see a big shuffling of the deck. You know, you know, the conference geography has been blurred with conference realignment and expansion. I think you're going to see some partnerships between conferences and bowl games that you never saw before, which is exciting. I think you're going to see some opportunities for some institutions to go to some communities uh, that they may not have had that, that chance to do before. All right. Fun stuff. Nick Carparelli, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Owen. That's it for today. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. We have the Super Bowl on the horizon with March Madness and MLB. After that, there's a lot happening. We're bringing you a side of the story you're not going to get in other places. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.